Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Our mission here is to know God and make Him known. And this this, uh, season that we're in, we're doing that by going through the book of Colossians, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. And so I want to encourage you to have your Bible open. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8 of the book of Colossians in chapter 1. So we're just getting started, and most of you remember that Colossae, it was a a smaller city away from Ephesus, uh, and it had been very prominent and popular at one point, and it had kind of declined by the time the church was started here. And so we've got a church that is facing false teachers, and and there's an angel cult likely that's in this city, uh, and so there, there's just lots of distractions for the Christian faith. And, and Paul is writing to this church to help them understand who Jesus is and also what it means to live in his kingdom, to live with him as king. So we're going to get over time this beautiful picture painted for us of our king and what it's like to live in his kingdom. But Paul begins this letter first by saying it's him who's writing and Timothy is along for the ride in the first couple of verses and and that he's writing to the church, the saints, those who are faithful and uh, who are given grace and peace by God the Father. And then he begins a practice that was common in letter writing at this time to say nice things about the people you're writing to. And, and some of us, we remember what it's like to write a letter. We, you might sit down and say, you know, miss you, miss your smile, miss your cooking. Life is good, but it's not as good as it was when you were here. Things like that. And, and so Paul begins to say nice things about the church. And he says this in verse 3. We, and so who's the we probably? Well, he's already said the letter is from himself and Timothy, whether Timothy is actively writing uh, as a co-author or simply he's Paul's secretary, we don't know for certain. But we, Paul and Timothy, and maybe the other believers gathered there with Paul and Timothy in the city of Rome as Paul is in his first uh, house arrest imprisonment in Rome. He says, wow, somebody's listened to the something. Anyway, uh, I heard myself out there and that's, that's just freaky. Anybody else not like your own voice on a recording? Yeah. When, when you uh, upload me, can you please drop me by like two or three tones? I'd like to be much more of a baritone than I am. Anyway, uh, here's what Paul writes to the church. And he says, we, Timothy and I, and the other believers gathered with me, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't say, we always pray for you, though we know that Paul had a practice of praying often and praying. uh, In Thessalonians, he tells us to pray without ceasing or to pray continually. So prayer was a constant part of Paul's life. But he's not disingenuous. He's telling the church here, when I do pray for you, which he's not saying all the time, but often likely, and when I pray for you, I always thank God. Now, we're going to find out what he's thanking God for, but I really wanted to focus in uh, for the first few minutes of our time together, not on his thankfulness, which we'll find is critical, but rather who he is giving thanks to, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've been a Christian since I was 15. How old am I now? I'm 48, almost 49, so that's 10 years, and... um, Really? Nothing, huh? A couple of you got it. But so um, I've been a Christian for a long while and I've been in the, the, the ministry for even longer, it, it feels like. Like I, I was in church from the time my parents drugged me in. I was teaching Sunday school before I was ever a Christian. And that just shows you how desperate some churches are, uh, you know, as a teenager helping to lead children. But, but the thing is, is I've been in this for so long that when I read something like this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've been in this so long, I've had so much education, that I forget 
that when we read something like that, not everybody understands what Scripture means. When we talk about God being the Father of God, Jesus Christ. How does that work? So I wanted to spend a few minutes, and first of all, I want to explain to you, I will not be able to explain this to a point where you go, oh, I get this completely, and I have no doubts or struggles. Because the, the, the nature of the Trinity, the nature of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is such that we have always struggled to wrap our minds around Him. And, and so we want to understand, to the best of our abilities, what is it, and in what way is the first person of the Trinity the Father of Jesus? And once again, this is just a little aside. We're not going to go into all the details, but I wanted to give you a picture because my fear is that some of us, when we read this verse, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we may be are thinking about the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, in a less than appropriate way because of the fact that when we read Father, we think of a certain person in a certain role and we transfer that onto God. And so let's talk about how God is the Father of Jesus Christ. First, what we need to understand about the God that we serve is in the Old Testament, he reveals himself very clearly as God. And he says this, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So wait a minute, we've got one God, right? Is that right? One God. Yes, that is right. One God, but then by the time we get to the New Testament, we're starting to see that God has not just a oneness about him, but a, a threeness about him. A Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he reveals to us. Is this a contradiction? Does the Bible contradict itself and teach us something in the new that is not present in the old? No, the Bible is not contradic contradicting itself. It is revealing to us, though, R.C. Sproul would say, a paradox. A thing that we cannot wrap our mind around because God is saying that he himself, as he reveals himself to us, is both one and three. Now, the oneness is in being and the threeness is in person. So this is not a contradiction. He's not saying he's one God and three gods. He's not saying he's one person and three people at the same time. He is saying he is one God, revealing himself showing himself to be who has always existed in three persons. And so as we look back through the Old Testament in light of the new, the Trinity is slowly revealed in the Old Testament. And, and uh, one teacher has described it this way, as though you were in a room full of furniture and the light is dim, but over time the, the, somebody's just pushing the slider up and slowly bringing the light up and you can see more clearly as time passes. So it, it, it slowly reveals the contents of the room. And so you were looking and, and in the darkness, in the almost darkness, you were able to make out some shapes. But then as the light increases over time, you're able to start seeing, well, that, that looks like a coffee table, and then there's a sofa, and, and that's probably a lamp, and I think I see something in the back. And then over time, once again, more light is given, and you are able to make it out more clearly. And then by the time we get to the New Testament, the room is fully lit. We can see all the contents of the room, and we understand where all the furniture sits. Now, this is a a kind of a messy analogy, right? But I think you understand that, that in the Old Testament, the Trinity is there. We can go back all the way into the language of, of the Old Testament. We see the Spirit uh, over the waters after God creates. We see God saying, let us make man in our own image. These, these echoes of the Trinity are already present in Genesis chapter 1. And so we see over time also that, that God begins to reveal that he has a son in the Psalms and, and other passages that, that he prophesies that that son will come and rule over us and redeem us. And then by the time we get to the New Testament, we have a full picture of the Trinity through the revelation of God in Christ Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, that God is one and yet three persons, Father, Father, Son 
and Holy Spirit. So one God, three persons. Now, how do we explain this? Poorly, most of the time. Uh, how, do we, how do we try and wrap our head around one God, three persons? Usually by espousing some sort of illustration that is in and of itself heresy and misspeaks about God. And so it's important for us to understand that as try as hard as we might, dive in as deep as we may, there is a good chance we will always struggle with understanding and saying with confidence, I get the Trinity. I get how God the Father is the Father to the Son, and the Son and the Father, uh, they are the ones who spirate the Spirit, that, 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 that I, I'll never be able to wrap my head around it all, and that's okay. And so we take what God says about Himself, and we take it at face value, and we believe it even when we can't wrap our head all the way around it. He is one God, three persons. He is co-eternal. In other words, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was never a time in God's existence when there was not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are co-equal. In other words, none of them are like the top God. We don't look and go, well, you know, in the Old Testament, God the Father was more important. And then by the time we get to Matthew chapter 1, Jesus becomes more important. And then when Jesus leaves and, and skedaddles, the Holy Spirit becomes the most important person of the Trinity. No, they are all equal always. And Scripture tells us, and, and we learn that they are of the same essence. They're made up of the same stuff. And it's not just like a little bit of the same stuff, you know, poured out a little here and a little for you and a little for you. But instead, all of them are completely God and made up of the, the same stuff, even as there are three persons. And you might be sitting here and going, why? Couldn't we have just talked about what Paul's thankful for? We'll get there. We'll get there. But what I want you to understand is, is when Paul talks about God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what I don't want to come into your mind is a picture of your dad. What, what I don't want to, to come into your mind is, is a picture of earthly fatherhood. Because what that does is it takes and it makes God into something he is not. And it limits God. And, and it actually leads us to a place where we believe wrongly about God the Father. And, and so I want you to understand that God the Father is not defined by the human experience. Rather, the human experience of fatherhood is a dim reflection of the fatherhood of God. I, I want you to understand when we talk about things like fatherhood and motherhood and marriage even, that all of these relationships that we have, that God has blessed us with as we walk this life, they are all simply dim reflections or or signs of, of real relationships or deeper relationships that exist within the Trinity. And so what we can, we can see is that it is not our fatherhood or what we understand fatherhood to be that defines God, but it is the fatherhood of the first person of the Trinity in relation to the Son that defines what a human father should look like. So a couple of differences here. A couple of differences. Human fatherhood. When, when you are... A human father, when you become a father as a human, you, you are divided. What you pass on to your son is only something impartial. Now, I could call William up, but he disappeared. I don't know if he's off getting coffee or avoiding responsibility or what. He should be in the sound booth with Ed. Anyway, William, my second son. If I were to call him up here, put him beside me, some of you would go, there's no way he's your son. Except for my wife, clearly. No, no, it, look, or you might say, oh my gosh, are they twins? I mean, there's clearly one that's fatter, but, but are they twins? Is Michael just the fat twin? And, um, and, and, and yet, you still, if, if then we call Shelly up and, 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 and put William and Shelly together, you see that William is not a perfect representation of me, even if we are nearly identical in so many ways. He, he is only part mine. 
He is, he is only a part of me. And, and I had to, to give of myself for him to be. And I am not lessened, but I, I, there was part of me that went away for him to become. And, and we're very alike, but we're nowhere near the same. Even if we might look like twins, and I'm the fat one, it, we are not the same. We have different being, different essence. But divine fatherhood, we can explain it like this. God, who is in himself without parts, is father of the son without any division, loss, or lessening of essence, with the son being of the same essence as the father. And so when we talk about God being father of the son, there's a word that we use, begotten. That God has eternally begotten, the Father has eternally begotten the Son. The Son is, is eternally given, there's, these words get really hard, given His subsistence from the Father. He, he, he is the Father, but, but different. He's everything the Father is, and yet a different person. They are God together, and they are God if they could be alone, alone. That there is nothing about the Son that is less than the Father. And the Father is not lessened by the beginning, begatting of this begottenness. Anyway, that word of the Son. That, that what we see is that Jesus is not Son of the Father. In there was a time when God the Father decided to have a Son. And gave a little bit of Himself so that there would be a Son. But instead... What we understand from Scripture, what we understand from doctrine, is that the Father and the Son have always existed as Father and Son. And yet the Son is in a position of being begotten by the Father, such that He is a unique person, and yet is made up of the exact same stuff, and is just as much God as the Father. And both of them are both completely God, separately and together. If you look and go, I don't get this. Welcome, welcome to, to trying to wrap your head around the Trinity. What, what's so important for us to understand is that the Father is not just a part of God. We do not serve one God divided up into three pieces. That is a mistake to understand. That's not who God is. The, the, the Father is God and Jesus is God 100%. How does that happen? I, th this is where we get to the, I don't know. But scripture tells us each person is unique. And yet each unique person is fully God. The father is not a greater being. In other words, the father is not the bigger God. He's not the better God. He is not a mode or a role of God. Sometimes we like to describe the, the father, son, and Holy Spirit thing like this. We look at a person and go, oh look, there's Michael. Michael is a son to his, his father. He is, he's a, a pastor you know, in this, this unique role. And he's also the father to his own sons. He's, look, he's got at least three roles. This one person serving in three roles. That's not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about the Trinity. We're talking about one being with three persons. Once again, you go, I don't get that. It's okay. We can talk about it more. But I wanted to challenge your mind. And I wanted you to not read father and think, oh, my dad, that God is like that, or that, that the relationship of the father to the son is like my relationship with my father. No, neither is the, the, the father another God or the original God. There are some heresies and some t false teachings, and the church here in Colossae would have been facing one like this that, that kind of taught that there was the original God who made other gods, and eventually we get down to Jesus and the God who creates the earth, and, and that, that there's some great big original God and we need to know the secrets how to get to him. That's what the church was facing. He is not another God. He's not the original God. What we have in church history in AD 325, that was a couple weeks ago, a bunch of uh, church leaders got together. They were struggling with the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. And they, they sat down together in order to confront heresy and they formulated this this creed. And this is actually, uh, first of all, translated, and second of all, 
the refined creed from later in church history, but this is kind of the heart of it. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. In the beginning, God created. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. So they preserve this relationship that Scripture itself, that Jesus himself reveals to us, Father and Son. Here's what we know of Jesus. Begotten from the Father before all ages. Now, what is before all ages? Well, before time exists, only God is. And so we say that there has never been a point where the Son is not the Son or the Father is not the Father. Begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Jesus is not a created being. Not made of the same essence as the Father. In other words, all the stuff that is the Father is the Son. And that there is no division of essence, there is no distinction of essence or stuffiness, but the Father and the Son are one and yet two separate persons. And then it goes on to say this, through Him all things were made. Wait a minute. Didn't we just say that God the Father was the maker of heaven and earth? Yes. And yet, through the Son, all things are made, is what Scripture tells us. It was through the will of the Father that the hand of the Son creates all things. And the Spirit dwells over it and oversees it. It's just this beautiful thing, the Trinity. And so, I wanted to just pause and go through this, because the last thing I want you to do when you read about the Father of the Son, the Father of Jesus Christ that you're thinking there's some sort of deal where they threw baseballs and, uh, you know, went fishing. And that you lessen the first person of the Trinity to look like your father or you as a father. Instead, what we must do is we understand that first person of the Trinity, God the Father, as he has revealed himself, and that we should strive to be like him in his fatherhood as we seek to be fathers and men who lead and love and serve. So if you have questions... Write them down, put them in the back of your Bible, and never ask them. Because nobody really understands. No, that's not true. I, I would love, if you're, if you're struggling, or if this is a, a hang-up for you, if the Trinity is a catch point for you in believing more fully in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let's talk about it. Can I answer all your questions? No. Why is that? Because in church history, we have really had to simply say, this is what God's Word says. This is what we see as the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and everything else, once we get past this that we have, has been revealed to us, gets to be a mystery. But that doesn't mean we can't talk about it and try and understand to the best of our abilities as we move forward in our faith. So, Paul says to us and the church in Colossae, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. What is it he's thanking God for? Well, he thanks God for two things. He says this, For we have heard of, this is what I'm thanking God for, what I've heard of, your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. So every time the Apostle Paul prays for this church, he is thankful to God for their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior and for the fact that they are growing in love toward one another. He looks at this church. Remember this church that he did not plant himself. This church that he's never even visited. But he says, I have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul, in writing to this church that's struggling a little bit with false teachers, he doesn't write to them and say, I've heard of all your great programs. He doesn't say, I heard that your kids' ministry is kicking it. Now, kids' ministry, I'm, I look forward to all the things God will continue to do through kids' ministry and youth ministry and the worship ministry. But he nowhere says to the church, 
man, I love your live stream and how the LED lights just accentuate the decorations. I'm so thankful that God is using LED lights in your church. Nowhere does he say, I'm so thankful that you guys have comfy seats, that you have men's breakfast once a month and 1829 twice a month. Nowhere does he say, I I look at, at, at the things that you've accumulated as a church. You've got a great building. Man, you guys should be proud of that building and a parking lot that's paved. God is at work in you. Nowhere does he say these kinds of things. What is it that he is thankful for? He's thankful for their faith in Christ Jesus and the love that they have for all the saints. He's not thankful for things that they've accomplished on their own. He's thankful for the work that God is doing in them. He's thankful for the, the change that's going on in them. And he says, where does this change come from? Where do these two things, this faith in Christ and this love for one another, where do they come from? Well, they come from the hope reserved for you in heaven. In other words, he's so proud of this church and so thankful for them because they have moved to a point where they are not focused on the things in front of them, but they are focused on the hope that's theirs in eternity in heaven. And that hope has started to give birth in their life to growing faith in Christ and increasing love for one another. That hope. Now, what is that hope? What is it that they've got to look forward to? Well, so Paul celebrated the faith and the love and the hope found in the Colossian church. And hope produces faith in Christ and love for the saints. How, how awesome is that? But what is that hope? And he goes on to say exactly what that hope is. That hope that's changing them, that's growing them up, that's helping them to follow after Christ more, more wholeheartedly and to, to, uh, to love one another. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. What is the hope that we have, the one that's secured in heaven for us for all eternity? It is the gospel. The gospel. Now, the problem with the word the gospel or the phrase the gospel is that sometimes we have different ideas about what the gospel is or might be. Uh, President Biden, uh, it was back on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, um, MLK's birthday. He was speaking at a church and um, he read the, the, uh, the golden rule, I think it was. Uh, maybe it wasn't the, go- it was uh, the great commandment. Love God and love others. And then he says, and that's what the gospel is to me. It's like, oh, that's not the gospel. I mean, it's a part. It's, it's, it's something the gospel produces. It's, it's the, the, the thrust of, of what it looks like to live out the gospel. But what is the gospel? You know, there are other people who, who would say that the gospel is making sure there are no hungry people in this world. That's the good news of God. Now, is it good that people are fed? Absolutely. Do we want to see poverty defeated? Yes. The gospel, though, is, is so different from anything that we would, would make it. In fact, we have to look back in Scripture. Our, our hope is the gospel. If the hope that produces change in this church, the hope that produces things that God is thankful for in this church is the gospel, then we need to make sure we understand what the gospel is. And we don't want to make it too complex because it's not complex. Here's what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 5. And, and I know we've said this before. We've gone over this passage before. But it's because it is so key to who you are as a Christian and what it means for us to be able to believe on Christ as our Lord and Savior and grow in faith and love for one another. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. What is the gospel? The gospel is you were a sinner. And your sin deserved punishment, but God loved you so much he sent Jesus, who lived a perfect life and died for the sake of your sins. How do we know he actually died? Because he was buried. You don't bury living things. 
He was buried. His death was genuine. It was real. It wasn't a fake. It wasn't a hoax. He really died. And on the third day, he rose again according to the promises of Scripture. Now, what does his resurrection prove? It proves that the Father has received his sacrifice as acceptable and pleasing and complete. It proves that he really is Messiah, King, Christ, Lord. It proves that everyone who believes on him, as he says, can and will be saved. And not only do do we have an empty tomb to prove that, but he also appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. Yeah, not not Hank Williams Jr. Um, (laughs) I know both Cephas, but... And then to the 12, the other apostles. And and not only that, to 500 other people, he appeared alive. And and Paul goes on to say here in 1 Corinthians, most of those people are still alive now. So if you want proof, go talk to them. They saw the risen Jesus. This is the gospel. And and we've talked about this in our gospel diamond. Remember this witnessing tool that, that we've given you to share our faith that we were created by a loving God for the purpose of walking in fellowship with him and being obedient to his ways. That's what the globe reminds us. The tree reminds us that Adam and Eve set the stage for all of us to reject God's standards, to rebel against his commands, to disfellowship ourselves. By sinning and disobedience. And that the the consequence that was earned by them and all of us through sin is death and the wrath of God. But God loved us so much, he sent Jesus, his only begotten son, who lived a perfect sinless life and died as a sacrifice for your sins and mine. He absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf and paid the consequences of your sins on the cross. That's what it says, right? He, he died for our sins. He was buried and rose again on the third day. And that empty tomb reminds us that everything he said is true and everything he did applies to all who would believe. And the heart reminds us everyone must make a choice to either receive him as their Lord and Savior or reject the work that he did on the cross to rescue us. And so this is the gospel. This is the hope of the church, both in Colossae and in McMurray, that we have this beautiful hope and this hope should inspire in us growth and change. It should create fruit. In fact, Paul says this, uh, this gospel that has come to you, it is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. How awesome is that? The same gospel that changed your life will change the lives of everyone who hears it and receives it. Just as it is among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. Here's here's the exciting thing. The gospel is bearing fruit. And the fruit that he's already talked about, the gospel, what it bears in our lives as a church is faith and love. Faith in Christ and love for one another. When we rightly understand the gospel and the hope that it is for us, it should produce in the lives of, of everyone who believes it. Faith and love. And it's growing all over. It's interesting that that this kind of reflects. If you guys remember Genesis 1, every time God creates creatures and and plants, what what does he tell it to do? Be, Be fruitful. Multiply. Consume the earth. Fill the earth. This is what he wants to have happen with the gospel. For it to be shared and bear fruit and multiply and spread out over the whole earth. And Paul says this, just as it's going all over, growing all over the whole earth, it has been doing that among you, bearing fruit and growing since the day you received it. Since the day you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there should have been this process going on in you where the gospel is bearing fruit. You have an ever-increasing faith in Jesus Christ. You love other believers more than the day you got saved. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing in you. This is how life changes. This is how we become the church we're supposed to be. This is how God is at work within us through the gospel and our utter dependence upon our Savior Jesus Christ. Our faith in him grows and our love for one another increases. This section of the letter ends with Paul saying this. You learned this from Epaphras. Our dearly loved fellow servant. 
If you remember, Epaphras is the one we believe who went to Ephesus, heard the Apostle Paul preaching, got saved, and then goes home to Colossae and goes, you guys won't believe what I just heard. And begins to share the gospel and a church is started there in the city. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. What's so cool? Just one person being faithful. One person sharing the good news. One person letting the gospel bear fruit and grow in them can change the lives of hundreds and thousands more when they are faithful, when they submit. So some things I want you to to grab a hold of today. Number one, to practice thankfulness for the fruit and growth of the gospel in our midst. You know, what's really easy to do nowadays is to look at your church and complain. And, and that's true for all of us. I, I got to tell you that as a pastor, I complain about you guys. And I say that with love. I complain about my kids. I, I, I have complained about my wife to, to my dad as we talk and stuff. And he's like, well, you won't believe what your mom's like. Um, <clears throat> When pastors get together, you know where it always ends up? There's at least one person that they end up complaining about. Now, the question is, is it you? No, I'm kidding on that. I, I, look, I, <laughs> I say that to say not that I am a complainer, because I am very thankful for this church and this fellowship. But I say that to say it's really easy to be a complainer, isn't it? It's really easy to look around the room and wonder, why isn't everybody else as committed as me? <laughs> yeah, there's the joke, right? There's the punchline. Why isn't everybody else as committed as me? It could be you're probably not as committed as you think you are. But it's also really, really easy, really, really easy to start complaining. And what Paul is encouraging us by practicing himself is this, to always thank God when we pray for one another. To look around the congregation, to look around our church family and not go, I wish that person would just. But instead to look around and go, I don't like this, but God, I'm so thankful that you're doing this. And when you don't see God at work in our midst, I got to tell you, your eyes aren't open wide enough. Because I see people that God is using in, in both out front ways and also in very quiet, subtle ways to undergird. I see God at work changing families. I see God at work changing individuals. I see God at work maturing us into Christ's likeness ever so slowly for some of us. Me, sometimes. But he's at work, isn't he? And every time we think of our church, instead of complaining, maybe we should be thankful. Instead of pointing out everything that we think is wrong and then looking at the church down the road and going, why can't we be more like them? Rejoice in what God is doing in our midst. So, practice thankfulness for the fruit and growth of the gospel in our midst. Second, I want you to be looking for the specific fruit that Paul mentions here. Faith in Christ Jesus. Well, what does faith in Christ Jesus look like as it's being produced in our midst? More of your life submitted to his kingship. More of your life submitted to his way of living. Which means, today I cuss, tomorrow I don't. Because I'm growing in Christ. Today, I lose my temper because nobody took out the trash. Tomorrow, I take out the trash, realizing I'm serving my family. T today, I complain because dinner was 15 minutes late. Tomorrow, I help finish it up and get it on the table. Don't be bumping each other, Bridget. She thought I didn't see that, but she was all like this to Jim. I was like, man, see, see. <laughs> I wouldn't talk to everybody like that. I know Bridget can take it. Um, if uh, she was going to leave, she would have left by now. 
but more of your life. So I, I think you get that, that, that we can look around the room and we can say to, of one another and ourselves that more of our life is submitted to, to the Lordship of Christ. Not that we are better people. I don't want you to hear that. But that in our struggles, we put Jesus in charge more often. More of your life is submitted. As you grow in faith in Jesus Christ, more of your character becomes like Him. That you are strong but meek. That you are bold but gracious. That you are loving and yet you stand for the truth and confront sin. That you begin to look more like the one that you say you love and serve. And you're, you're trusting in his promises for life and godliness more and more. In other words, not just are you doing Jesus things in the moment, but as you plan your future, as you're looking to next week, as you're looking to next year, as you're looking down the next decade, that you take what he says and you apply it even to your long-term plans and trust that he will work all things out for your good and his glory. The second thing I want to encourage you to be looking for and praying for and, and looking to grow in as you grow in the gospel is your love for the saints. Now, you don't have to get the jerseys and, and be all like, who dat? But what he means is your love for other believers. Your love for other believers. And your love for the saints... I, I long to see in all of us an ever-increasing measure of genuine care for other believers. Now, the church is notorious for this. Not our church, but the church. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine. All right. Well, you look miserable, but I'm going to leave it like that because I don't really care. <laughs> I don't want to open that can of worms. <laughs> but when we genuinely care for one another, when somebody looks downcast and we go, how are you today? And they go, I'm fine. We go, no, you're not. I, I, how can I care for you? How can I love you? Genuine care, being, being willing to, to forego something on our schedule that was really important for us in order to meet someone else's need in something that's important for their schedule. You, you guys get the picture. A real genuine care for other believers. And your love for, for the saints to, to see an ever-increasing practice of you giving of yourself in actions. Not just saying, I'll do that. I'll pray for you someday, hopefully. But that you really are willing to give of yourself. Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 as counting everyone else as more important than yourself. And this is what it means to grow in love for the saints. So all of this, though, flows from the gospel. This is where we need to start in our understanding is celebrating the fact that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was buried and Jesus rose again. And when this becomes the core tenet of our life, then we will see in ourselves, just like Paul saw in the Colossian church, we will see faith that grows. We will see love that increases. And we will glorify God and be a church more and more worth being thankful for. So, this morning, I hope you can take one of these things that you can find it and apply it in your life. And if nothing else, this morning, celebrate the good news of the gospel. You are a sinner. You deserve wrath and death. But God loved you so much, he sent Jesus. And Jesus, on the cross, took for you the wrath and death that you deserved and gave you the opportunity to be clothed in all of his righteousness so that when you believe on him as your Lord and Savior, not only will he save you from your sin, but also he will clothe you in his own goodness and you will be perfect in the eyes of the Father. So much good stuff here. Now let's live it out. We're going to get even better as this goes on. We're going to see Paul's prayer for this church and just what his hopes for them were. Even as he celebrated the good that was already happening, he says to them in his prayer, God can do more. And so join us next week as we look at the prayer he has for them, which is also for us. And we join together in understanding that God is waiting to do more 
in our midst. Let's pray together as the worship team makes their way up. Father God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. And we ask that your word would sink deep, that the words of, of, of your heart and your spirit would cut us like a double-edged sword, would reveal to us where we need to turn over more to you, would celebrate in us where we're already walking faithfully, and would help us to grow in our faith in your Son and our love for one another. We thank you so much for the gospel. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the gospel is not just a story about a good man who did good things, but it is of the perfect man who was the Son of God, and you gave yourself for us that we might be called sons of God. Thank you for all you did for us. And may your gospel, your good news, your work on the cross become the centerpiece of who we are as a church and as individuals. Continue to open our minds and our hearts and help us to believe even as we struggle to believe some days. May we grow in faith and love as we already have secured to us the hope of your gospel. It's in your name we pray this morning. Amen. If you have questions or you'd like to talk, you'd like to talk about salvation or application of anything we've discussed this morning, be sure to find me or one of the elders and we'll be happy to work through things with you all. So let's stand together and sing about the goodness of our King.
to celebrate. Thank you so much for being here today. May God bless you this week as you seek to focus on the gospel and allow it to bear fruit and to grow in your life that you might grow in faith and love for one another. This Sunday, we had the privilege of uh, Ed Ridge, who is a missionary uh, that we help support through Lottie Moon uh, offering. He's here with us today for it's great to have you here, but sorry that it's for circumstances that are less than desirable. His wife's uh, mom is not doing well physically. So uh, we're going to pray for her. And if you would like to talk to any, uh, Ed about uh, missions, I know he'd love to tell you about IMB and uh, the great things that they do and, and how he's had the privilege of serving. So let's pray as we are dismissed. Father, we thank you so much for Ed and, and uh, his ministry and the ministry of the International Mission Board. We pray that you would bless him and his wife's mother, that, that there would just be strength and, and renewal. We pray that uh, she would have the confidence of your presence and that uh, you would preserve her in every way according to your perfect will and plan. Uh, We thank you that uh, you have made us part of a greater body that does the work of sending out missionaries like Ed and his family. And uh, we pray you would bless their journeys, bless their ministry, and bless their works, even as we pray for safety and blessing upon every missionary that serves in the Southern Baptist Convention. It's in your name we pray this morning, Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.